0: Through food, adventures calling Forest fires, cougoos Marlin, take a chance And roll the dice one day If you're a team, play us Find you, millennials can Join this quest too Expedition, we're gonna find a way The grizzly Pace The grizzly Pace The grizzly Pace So the trip is over Quite literally (laughs) Quite literally the trip is over Um we're back in Bakersfield And I wanted to record a quick episode Even though Even though I didn't think I was going to Um I uh, I just There's some things I had to get off my chest So to speak It's a bit chilly now Um it's not too bad Um yeah, it was quite a trip. I, um, you know, and and this is completely legal in California now. I, um, I bought some edible marijuana. <laughs> and, um, yeah, man. <laughs> Took way too much of it on the first day. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, um, I was, rather foolishly, I didn't think that it would be a good idea to look up the sort of recommended... Dosage in milligrams of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, cannabinoid, <laughs> whatever it is, um, uh, because I, technically, technically speaking, I probably took about four times more than I should have on my first go, and 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 I'm I'm no neophyte when it comes to this, but I haven't really um, smoked or taken any eaten or you know whatever marijuana in any meaningful way for a long long time a meaningful way and uh yeah it um definitely put me on my ass (laughs) definitely put me on my ass uh I became fairly fairly sort of jellyfish like for about four hours A couple of hours But it was definitely not very enjoyable at all I tend to get quite paranoid (laughs) When very stoned And um And started worrying about all kinds of things Um At one point I was worrying about A crank handle (laughs) That Yeah I was worrying about a crank handle Um it was very weird interacting with my daughter with <laughs> my five-year-old daughter um I, she didn't understand why i was laughing at everything that she was saying and doing poor thing Anyway, this is not about this this episode is not about my foolishness. I then discovered that actually so then i then I took what what was a sort of introductory dosage, which is five milligrams let's put it this way i I, I took twenty milligrams on my first go, which which is quite a strong dosage for someone that's not used to it and they they recommend <laughs> they recommend that you should take between two and five milligrams on your first first <laughs> sort of when you're first trying trying out a an edible product. Just to make just to see, and, and I took like, yeah, ten to uh, uh, four, <laughs> yeah, I took 20 milligrams, and, and then I took five on, an, on the next day, or the day I can't remember when, and, and that was nice, but didn't do very much, and then I realized the sweet spot was was ten, which dum dum, that was one gummy, so yes, one gummy equals one dose. I, I should have realized that rather than just gobbling two down in one, but anyway. What is done is done. Um, I think it opened up some neural pathways that have been a bit clogged. And, um, yeah, but really <laughs> what this episode is about is, is H.G. Wells. Herbert George Wells. Herbert George Wells, H.G. Wells. And if you think you know H.G. Wells, and we all think we do... Without ever having read any, because it's the stories are so embedded in our consciousness, in our cultural consciousness. If you even think you know H.G. Wells and you haven't read his books, go and read them. It was a complete revelation. I, I've been listening to it's actually through Audible. Uh, I, I'm a Audible subscriber and. What's great about Audible is that... Well, I, I didn't realise this for a long time. You get a credit every month to buy a book, which is great. <laughs> um, which is a bit expensive. It's like $15 for a book, for an audiobook, once a month. But <laughs> I didn't realise for ages that there's tons of free books on there as well, which you get access to if you're a subscriber. So, truth be told, you can get... More or less as many books as you want Every month for $15 As as long as it's a book that you That you want to read You can get as many books as you want More or less Uh, That guy was trying to run me over Um, And There is a magnificent HG Wells collection there um, With Brilliant um, Narrators there's uh oh I'll probably forget there's david tennant there's um the um pompous one from from thingy <laughs> I can't, what what is that that very popular british t v show set in the country house with the upstairs and downstairs thing that everyone watched i can't remember what it's called, but anyway the pompous one from that who who's a very good narrator I think he narrates the time machine um so so uh Yeah, David Tennant Tennant narrates War of the Worlds. The Pompous Guy narrates The Time Machine. Uh, Sophie Okonodo um, narrates, what does she narrate? Oh, The Invisible Man. Jason Isaacs narrates. Jason Isaacs narrates the last one, which is The Island of Dr. Moreau, and I'm missing one. First Men on the Moon. Oh, maybe that's the pompous... Anyway, it doesn't matter. First Men in the Moon. And of them all, of them all, only really First Men in the Moon didn't do it for me. I find that a bit... Uh, I don't know. It's probably one of his lesser-appreciated science fiction novels. I guess they had to throw it in, because they made films of it, and cavarides and stuff like that. Pretty iconic. But, man, the others are all amazing. And... And um, I'll go into each one uh, in, in a little bit of detail, but but I think as an overall, um, as an overall uh, appreciation, what is so stunning about about H. G. Wells is is just the quality, the fluidity of his writing. Um, he's just a technically brilliant author, and you just get carried along with these with these stories, and. The other thing which he, you know, declared and acknowledged is that, that his conception was to have one idea per story, one big idea, and then build everything around that, not throw in loads of other ideas. And, and that's why his stories are so iconic, that each one is a single amazing idea, an idea that may, you know, there were precursors to. He wasn't the first writer to write about going to the moon or about time travel um, or about beast men um, or about Earth being invaded I, I don't think he was the first to write about Earth being invaded by, by aliens. Oh or maybe he was and that, that one I don't know, but all the others you can, you can find lots of precedent for but but he he somehow is the one that is known for inventing those things and and for essentially inventing science fiction because he applied... Not only was he very single-minded in exploring that idea and all of the ramifications of it, almost working through in this incredibly powerful, logical way what would happen in, in these circumstances, but he applied the absolute cutting edge science understanding to these ideas and thus it became science fiction so people had travelled in time before but he was the first person to ascribe that to a machine that essentially manipulated time-space or space-time and brought in um you know I, you know modern ideas about physics and and astrophysics in, into a, into a fictional story and made them accessible and made them understandable and And that is what where his genius li- lies. He also created extremely memorable characters. Um, he was a brilliant character characterizer characteristicator <laughs> what's the word inventor of characters. His dialogue is really crisp as well His use of metaphor is great His descriptive powers are awesome And you know what? It's pretty Lovecraftian, some of this stuff And, you know, that's 20, 25 years, 27 years before Lovecraft War of the Worlds That's not that far from Call of Cthulhu Not Really? And and I think a lot of writers really sort of took his one idea or one of his one ideas and and made like entire careers out of writing about that sort of stuff, and and he just moved on to the next thing. There's not a lot of repetition in these five um, in these five classics. Um, I suppose the first Men in the Moon is the one that. That is the is the most derivative in a way, and the most sort of, and the least sort of easy to 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 kind of grasp. It's it almost feels like a um, like a weak a weaker version of the time machine, with some really clever aspects as well. Actually, around radio radio telephony, radio telegraphy, whatever it's called, um, communication over a distance and you know, he he was an amazing visionary, an absolutely extraordinary visionary, to to have kind of foreseen the future of nuclear war and total war and and, and genetic engineering uh, and space travel. You know, wow, what a mind, what a mind. So let's start at the beginning. I mean, it's, I don't think it is the beginning, but it is, in a way, the beginning for everyone with H.G. Wells, which is the War of the Worlds. Now, of course, we all know the story. This is, this is kind of like my premise, is that we all know the story so well, that, and, and I have to ashamedly put my hand up and say my whole life... I've, I think I've, my whole conscious life I've known the story. We had the Jeff Lynn, I think it was a Jeff Lynn album, War of the Worlds. The soundtrack. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, she said. Or he said. <laughs> I still fucking remember the lyrics. We had that when I was about 10 years old or something. Um, so I... <laughs> Ooh, la... Ooh la! I didn't, re- I, I, I didn't realize that that was the sound that they made. I, I don't know because there's a song in it where they go ooh la. That's actually the sound that the Martians make. Anyway, I must track that out. <laughs> I'll have to find that on Spotify and listen to it. And, and you know, it's probably a really terrible album. But but so what I'm saying is, and a shame, And of course, the film. The what is it? Rod? No, not Rod Steiger. It's it's who's is it? Rod Steiger that's in Time Machine no it isn't it isn't it's someone I can't remember Rod St- Rod Sterling no that's that's um, that's uh, the the, the um, uh, what's the name Zone the <laughs> um, yeah so point being we all know the story so and, and, and me ashamedly I've never thought that I'd ever that I wanted to read the book because I know the story why would I read the book you know why do I read the old fusty old It's probably and just go and fucking read the time, uh, the War of the Worlds, and the Time Machine. Um, yeah, the, the, I'm, I'm thinking of the time. I'm mixing up the Time Machine, Rod Sterling, Rod. Sterling. <laughs> anyway, just go and fucking read War of the World. Read them all, because um, if you haven't read them, and if you have read them, read them again. And I'm going to listen to them again, because because the quality of the writing is extraordinary and. And they are hardcore, man All of the world is a fucking hardcore piece of writing It is utterly horrifying It is utterly horrifying The descriptions of what the, the, the Martian engines do to people is just horrifying There's a bit when people are getting boiled alive in this river And, and um, just... Utterly decimated by these war machines and, and the sort of gung-ho British attitude Very rapidly um, becomes eroded and, 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 and it becomes true hell It is an apocalyptic vision Unlike, I, I can't imagine what people at the time reading it must have thought They must have been utterly shocked reading this stuff And then the descriptions of the Martians themselves And what they were doing to human beings to feed on them Holy crap! And David Tennant does a sterling job. He narrates it with his actual accent, his Scottish accent, which is, which is uh, obvious because he is Scottish, and he's. It's weird when you hear him talking his real accent, David Tennant, because you never really hear him doing a Scottish accent. You know, Doctor Who and, and Casanova and all of that. Um, and and uh, oh, uh, Broad, what's it called? Broad Church, Broad Church. That was a really dark TV show Anyway, so War of the Worlds And, um, and as I said It has this Really interesting Lovecraftian aspect To it, the, the, the alienness Of the minds and, and the fact that they kind of look Fairly Cthulhu-esque They actually um, They actually look more like beholders That's what's funny about them When you, when you, um, when you read it Properly for the first time Or listen to it they actually, it's. It, I, I think they're more like beholders than Cthulhu. But they, they the beholders, kind of become this cute, funny thing in D and D. But man, the way Wells describes them, is they ain't. They ain't cute or funny. They are not cute and they are not funny. So, uh, so then the second story in the collection is the first men in the moon, which is a weird use of grammar, really, isn't it? I mean, you don't. It makes me think of the man in the moon, and maybe that's what he was referring to and um and maybe it was just something peculiar to his writing or, or something of the time where he would say the man in the first men in the moon as suppose the first men on the moon, I suppose you know if you think about you know no one had ever landed on a planet before, therefore I suppose. Uh, if, if you compare it to, you know, Columbus, they were the first men in in America, the first <laughs> Western men in uh, the first European men. Let me correct myself again: the first European men in in the Americas. So I suppose it's that, but but also, of course, um, you know, and there's no I'm not giving away spoilers here but the the aliens they encounter do live inside the planet. And I suppose I'm being a bit unfair. It's narrated by alexandra Vlahos, who I have no idea who he is. Um, and perhaps I'm being a bit unfair because now I'm thinking about it a bit more. There are some absolutely, you know, brilliant, um, uh, brilliant ideas in there. You know, at the beginning, it's fascinating because his his theory that um, there, there might be a substance that you could find, which, of course, we know now is, is not possible because we understand now how gravity works, that it's not, uh, it's not so much like... It's not like the other forces. It's not like radiation. Um, you know, you can't protect against... Um, you can't create a substance that doesn't get affected by gravity, whereas he comes up with this idea that, ca- you know well, or rather the, the scientist Cavour, Henry Cavour, I think Cavorite invents Cavourite which is, a, which is a material that basically doesn't get affected by gravity and so, but, but it's not like it just bounces into the air his idea then ouch, I just burnt myself <laughs> idea I'm carrying some coffees back um his idea is that the air on top of it is no longer is no longer pushing is no longer actually pushing downwards uh, downwards on on the cavalry and therefore it gets sucked up (laughs) into the air forever um, it, it, it almost it, it like repels the air, and, th- and therefore, because there's no air pushing all around it, there's unequal pressure. It's it's really clever. It's a clever piece of thinking, um, but of course, nonsensical, <laughs> as we know now that gravity doesn't work like that. You obviously, air you don't need air to create the pressure for gravity. Um, that it's actually a warping of of space, uh, and creating these sort of gravity wells that you fall into constantly because of the mass of the object which you're near to. And of course the black hole creates a, you know, an infinitely deep gravity well which you can't escape from. Whereas Earth creates a, a small gravity well that you don't actually need a lot of energy to escape from. Um, relatively speaking. And how do we know this? Just jump up in the air. <laughs> That's you escaping the gravity of Earth. Briefly Briefly <laughs> But you have escaped the gravity of Earth um, To actually get out of its gravitational pull Requires quite a bit more energy But, but mainly lateral Not vertical Anyway, why am I going into this? I, th- th- I'm going into this because th- th- This is what Wells does to you He, he makes you think he ma- And, and I, again Can't imagine what he was doing to people's heads Back in 1895 By writing this stuff um, and there's some really interesting ideas About what the moon must have been like He made the false assumption That there was atmosphere on the moon But but that aside A lot of the other stuff sort of makes sense Because he knew of course That the moon had a side That was always paint, pointing towards um, Or rather the The lunar day Is... Is very long. Now I'm probably going to <laughs> get this wrong, and that there was a, a, a long period of day followed by a long period of night, and that what and his assumption was that that the night time would get incredibly cold. Which of course, if there was an atmosphere, it would. But but it's always perpetually cold on on the moon. It doesn't matter whether you're in the sun or not, because there's no air. Um, but he wasn't to know that. Um, I don't think anyone knew that at the time, that there was no air on the moon. Um, there was no reason to think that there wasn't. Of course, we now understand all the reasons why there is an atmosphere around certain planets and not or very thin or non-existent one around others. And, uh, I don't know enough about this to explain why, but we know, we know that that's the case. <laughs> So, but then I I think where the story gets weak Is then with the alien encounters And and they're not bad They're just not the same level of creativity As his other stories Having said that, it seems like Clark Ashton Smith Kind of basically ripped off Wells immensely for all Of his um, um, You know, spacefaring stories They really are all very, very Similar to the first Men in the Moon Um, if you believe there's a man in the moon Um, maybe maybe that's why it's the first man in the moon and then of course we get on to The Time Machine his all time classic but it's weird saying that because actually he wrote so many all time classics but somehow this one stands out I think because um Well, I think it embedded itself, as so many others did. The idea embedded itself so deeply into our um, collective collective consciousness. I mean, the fact that these devices are now all called time machines, that is the generic. You know, I suppose you've achieved something as a writer when you coin a phrase that becomes the generic. So, Wells did it. Joseph Heller did it with Catch 22. Um, uh, Shakespeare certainly did it a lot. Uh, but not many authors do that in their careers. Not many authors create, you know, oh, wow, that's a loud music coming from somewhere. Um, and a really loud. I oh, gosh. Right. Um, yeah, not many authors achieve that, do they? So, so this is why it's his iconic piece. Now, I think the movie with Rod Taylor, as I've just discovered, I, 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 I was pretty good. I got the Rod bit right, didn't I? Um, rod Taylor, who I don't, you know, he's, he's that very sort of tan, shiny guy, <laughs> if you remember him. Sort of square-jawed, clean-cut, very <laughs> dashing the, movie, the, the 1960 movie it, it's a bit boring I mean it's a bit boring and a bit weird and a bit sort of, I don't know um, I, I haven't seen it in a long long time but I don't think it's a particularly good movie um, so I, I, I think to some extent that, that colours our perception of it um, and now I'm talking about it I'm wondering what was the film of The War of the Worlds that that soundtrack was from was it actually from a film or was it a sort of soundtrack for a film that never existed? Because I, only, I can only think of, well, there was the radio play, obviously, the Awesome Welles radio play. And then there's the film with, um, with Tom Cruise, which actually is a pretty good film of War of the Worlds, I have to say, I, I I like Tom Cruise I know he's an arsehole but I think he's a good actor <laughs> he is a good actor, he's a damn good actor um, and, and he's fun in that and it's pretty horrible at parts um, I mean, it's a Spielberg film, isn't it? so it should be good um, although he's fallen off, hasn't he? what's happened to Spielberg? um <laughs> oh god, where am I going with this? um Get back on track Get back on track So I, 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 can't, I can't Was there actually a 1970s film Of War of the Worlds I'll have to look it up after this Maybe I'll reply, return to my next segment But um, Yeah, so the time machine um, Put all that Stuff aside Let's focus on the writing itself Again, masterful Absolutely masterful First person perspective Told as a, as, a narr- as a retelling As a man telling um, uh, A group of friends What has happened to him and So it actually starts with him Before his Before his journey Before his um, before, before he goes off And Again Really clever thinking Around what it, what it would be like or what, what what science would be required to escape the linear the li- linearity of time so i think he i think he talks about flatland at one point i can't remember maybe i'm making this up but but you know the novel flat flatland a um, uh, romance in, dimen- in in two dimensions or whatever it's called um, which really expostulates this idea of, you know, we, we you know, no, this, this now well worn idea that, that actually what we see is a three dimensional intrusion of a four dimensional reality, and that's what we see as objects. But, rea- but the reality is that they, they aren't as we see them, we just see the three dimensional kind of after image of them, which is everything we can experience, because we can't experience multiple dimensions. Although, although, of course, we experience time, but in a linear way, and of course, if you can stand outside of, of that fourth dimension Of, of, of the um, linear forward movement of time Then you'll be able to see things very differently and He doesn't get into that But what he gets into is, is an ability to um, he doesn't explain it of course Because how would you explain how a machine can do this But his machine um, allows, allows time to be speeded up Or, or to be reversed and, and, and he does go into this interesting thinking around what it would be like to observe a time machine um, going forward in time. And I think one of the characters um, sort of deduces, uh, they're not sure, the first time the machine disappears, <laughs> it goes off on its own and then comes back. You obviously have, it's, like, it's like a VCR, you can, you can set the timer on it. And it comes back, and and they 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 don't know whether it's gone forward or backward in time. And one of the characters says, "Well, obviously it can kind of gone backwards in time, because then we would we would have seen it the whole time. It would it would have still been here." Of course, what what none of these time machine or time travel things ever take into account is the planetary motions, because <laughs> you know as soon as you move in time. The Earth will no longer be where it was when you come back. So basically you end up in, in, in the vacuum of space. But but let's just assume that, that that is not... That somehow you stick to where you were spatially. Um, and if that being the case, then you would still see it. Um, likewise, they say, well, if it's gone forward in time, surely we would see it as well. Because it's still there. It's just moving forward. And it hasn't disappeared. But it... Its instance Is somewhat now in the future But it doesn't mean it's left your present <laughs> Which is a bit of a mind fuck isn't it If you think about it um, but, but the way he describes it Is that like the spokes of a wheel As they move faster You stop being able to see them So, so it's not that it's not there It's just moving so fast In time That you can no longer see it And that's why it disappears Fucking hell What a man HG What a man Coming up with shit like that In in 1896 I mean The more I read of his stuff The more I realised he was a unique A unique genius And Could have probably done anything he wanted to And, And how wonderful That he graced us with writing genre fiction And it's weird in a way That he is never referenced In any of the genre fiction um, You know, like the Appendix N stuff He is the, ga- the ga- granddaddy of, of Appendix N Okay, yeah, he didn't write any fantasy stuff But his sci- science fiction stuff it, it Influenced all the fantasy stuff as well The ideas in them uh, he should be, like, at the top of the fucking heap of Appendix N. If, if you want to read genre fiction, weird fiction, he's your man. I mean, I, I, I'm I going to go and try and find all this other stuff. Now, I know that he sort of, again, like a lot of artists, he, he sort of went off the rails a bit, apparently, in his later work. Um, there's some George Orwell quote about what a tragedy that the greatest, like, mind should have... Ended up in such triviality I, 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 or, or such t- t- That he was kind of stuck in this in, in, in the past or something That he wasn't able to comprehend The reality of the new Of the new world order Of the new world And what he meant What Orwell meant by that was He, he didn't really understand What it meant to, to be living in a post-war World Um even though he wrote about the War of the Worlds. He he wasn't able to then adapt to what it meant to be in a in a in a in a world where where these terrible things had happened. And so he sort of became a bit a bit redundant, a bit sidelined, a bit irrelevant, I think, in his latter latter years, which is a damn shame, because man. Yeah, what a genius. And I think what is most remarkable about the Time Machine um, is is the inescapable gloominess of it, the apocalypticness of it, all that Wells can see in the future of man is ultimate degeneration, decay, and dissolution and and destruction. Um the the world of eight hundred thousand years in the future where the let's say the ruling classes have degenerated into the Eloi, these yeah emotionless, dumb almost animal-like in their simplicity creatures and the, and the genuinely animalistic Morlocks who live below. He was a, he, he was a great believer in, in, in social reform. H.G. Wells wrote extensively about it and The Time Machine is probably his most clear analogy for, for the, the, the ills that he saw in the world and the ultimate end where... Um, we forget what it is to, to create, to, to build, to make things, where we just degenerate into a state of, of utter incapability, and, and that brings our doom. And, um, and, of course, it was Hugh Bonneville that narrated uh, the audiobook. Uh, Hugh Bonneville, who was the pompous old git in whatever that uh, incredibly popular, very, very boring British TV show was. Heritage. Heritage. Um, far, a far better actor I think <laughs> uh, is Sophie Okonodo. Uh, they're both good. I mean, Hugh fine but yeah. Um, no, but Sophie Okanodo, she's an amazing actress and, and her um, actor and uh, <laughs> her, her narration of The Invisible Man which is the fourth book in the collection, is just exquisite. She's really good at accents, really, really good at accents, like West Country and and, um, posh British accents and everything in between. And The Invisible Man is an interesting one. I think it is brilliantly written, but the effect of it isn't as powerful now, I think, as it would have been at the time. And, of course, you can say that about anything written in those times and, and you, you have to contextualise your reaction based on the fact that a lot of things have changed since. And the main thing, I think, is the, is the normalisation, let's call it, of the anti-hero in literature and culture. But at the time, I would posit that... People had never seen a hero, anti-hero main character quite like Griffin in The Invisible Man. Because he is a thoroughly evil, a thoroughly, thoroughly evil person. Except, and this is where Wells' genius comes in, except you sort of sympathise with him to some extent. He does many awful things, but he seems to have been put into that position by his situation that you know to, again taking the logical end point of what it really like to be invisible he, here is a man who cannot be part of society so he has to be outside it he has to become a criminal there is no other way for him to survive anymore he is a freak he would be he would be you know they would come after him with pitchforks and burning torches and, and, and um, he knows that. <laughs> Why do people play music so loud in their cars here? <laughs> Jesus Christ. And it's not even good music. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's so loud. Can you hear it? Like, I, I used to do that when I was 18. But you're a grown man. No one needs to hear your garbage spewing out of your car. It's worse when they have the really thumpy bases. Anyway. Uh, Yeah. So that's his tragedy, is that he is forced to become a villain and, and an awful, awful human being along the way. The science in it is really interesting. And I think this is one of Wells's... Most interesting and probably best scientific um, speculation About how something could Or someone rather could be truly invisible Um, Because there's a lot of logical problems With an invisible creature Um, not, Not least exemplified by the Ambrose Bierce Story. Um, what is that thing or something, wh- wh- whatever it's called, about an invisible monster? And and the British's explanation is that it, it was a colour that uh, outside the spectrum that that humans are able to see in, which is fine because we can't see infrared or ultraviolet. But 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 the problem with that is that then there would just be this. Sort of black. I mean, it's not infrared or ultraviolet because um, it has physicality. And um, and and if it was a colour that we just can't see, there would just be a sort of a black shape there. We wouldn't be able to see see anything. Uh, we would be able to see the the thing, but we would we would see that there was something there, <clears throat> like something made of van'ta black like vanta black that blacker than black the blackest thing on earth that you can't quite see it because it's so black that it absorbs so much light you can't see the contours of the surface but you can still see there's an object there however uh, uh, wells actually has already thought this all through i think before ambrose bierce wrote his story or maybe not about the same time maybe um and he goes into or at least the 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 griffin goes into a lot of detail about how when he's talking to the doctor about how um, objects c- can be seen because, of the, because they reflect some light, they refract light and they also absorb light and it's, and it's those three qualities that allow you to see the object, either through um, darkness or ref- you know, bright reflections or you know I'm not, and I'm not going to go into the science of it because I don't understand the science of it. But, but then he, he makes a really interesting observation that if you can reduce the refraction and the reflection and the absorption of an object, you can make it almost invisible. You can make it glass-like. Um, and that the body isn't made up of um, substances that have color. It's actually made up of transparent substances. It's only the layering of them that, that produces the colour. He, he claims that only hair and blood have colour. Everything else is colourless. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. But the comparison he made is, is taking a piece of glass and putting it into water. Because then the glass just disappears. Because the amount of refraction that happens from the light passing from the water to the glass is, is almost nothing. And that's why glass disappears when you put it in water. And, and he makes a, uh, an analogy between that and whatever process he manages to apply to his body so that the, the pa- passage of light from, from air into his body causes no refraction or reflection, and thus he becomes invisible. Of course, it's all nonsense, but it's very clever nonsense. Um, so, yeah, so on top of all the social context the social horror the personal horror really of the invisible man there is the there is the um the science which is really extraordinary really and then on to the final story and one that I knew the least although even though I knew it the least I still knew it because you can't as with all the others you can't not know these stories um, the Island of Dr. Moreau. This one was narrated by Jason Isaacs. Hello to Jason Isaacs. Only about two people listening will get that reference. But anyway, um, Jason Isaacs is uh, brilliant. Um, he really... I, I think he's the best of the five narrators. His accents, his intonation, um, his playing of the Beast Man. He, uh, he, uh He played Lucius Malfoy... For those of you who don't know who Jason Isaacs is, he played Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter films and, and a bunch of other stuff that I can't remember right now. He was in quite an interesting time travel show that got cancelled after one season, I seem to remember, where he played two different people in two different times. or I, I can't remember what it was, but it was actually pretty good. He's been in loads of stuff. Um, and he went to my school, apparently, um, although how I know that, I can't recall. Something to do with Mark Commode. Anyway, too many irrelevant references. But let's get back to the island of Dr. Moreau. Because this is one, as I said, I, I knew the least. But I still knew the, the basic premise. Um, a mad scientist is turning animals into men using surgery and genetic engineering. And that's really the story but oh i don't know it's like there's the seeds of so many things in here um not the least not least animal farm by george orwell i mentioned george orwell earlier he clearly was a big fan and then maybe later a critic of of hg wells and I cannot believe that, that Orwell wasn't influenced by, by H.G. Wells, by, by specifically the island of, Doc, of Dr. Moreau, where animals, um, you know, animals are, in this story, it's not a fable, so in this story they are given an intelligence through, through science, through the application of science, and then they start forming these strange, like, societies mimicking man and, and m- mimicking the worst things of man and 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 some of that some of that sort of chanting that they do so so they have these these laws these laws uh, that you you shall not you know hunt like a beast you shall not eat the fish or the flesh uh you shall be like a man you shall be like a man it's almost akin to um two legs good four legs bad Or was it the other way around? Four legs good, two legs bad. I'm probably actually getting the whole thing inverted. Um, But 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 the regardless that it's inverted, it's still there's a very strong echo of that. And you know the 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 issues that it that it's contemplating, like the man's ability to create intelligence man's domain over the natural world and, and the destructiveness that, that that creates man's arrogance um, because of what he and she he or she can do with science you know in the face of a of the natural world and the consequences for it the extreme violence that that occurs in the, in that situation um genetic engineering playing playing god all of this stuff is so amazingly captured. And again, <laughs> hindsight is, is, is a wonderful thing, but in this case, I wish I hadn't known the story when I was reading it or listening to it because I, I think a reader at that time coming fresh to, to it would have been utterly shocked at the revelations because like the reader, or sorry, like the, the narrator, the reader probably... Thinks that that Moreau is operating on humans. the 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 protagonist gets shipwrecked, and he he see he hears and sees the the results, and he thinks that these are human beings being operated on. He he doesn't realize that it's, that it's animals being being vivisected and and grafted and God knows what being done to them, and and, and then the the awful tragedy of them living in 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 awful suffering, for, for he said that the, the, the suffering they undergo on the vivisection table is nothing compared to the suffering that they, they then must endure as a result of being given intelligence. They went from being perfectly happy animals, living perfectly happy animal lives, which, which is of course is a very anthropocentric way of looking at things, whether animals are happy or not in their natural state, who knows. But they certainly that's how they are meant to be. And then the acquisition, the, the acquiring of, of some degree of self-awareness and knowledge and knowing that they are brutes and, and not like men is, is tragic. So, yeah, <laughs> wow, it's a, it's a corker, it's a corker. And, and again, very nihilistic. I, I, I don't think you quite realize how nihilistic and... Um, how much of a satirist and a critic of humanity Wells is until you really reread these stories, because they get denuded and and sort of simplified by Hollywood. I think that was the main criticism of the Time Machine was kind of gave, they gave it a happy ending. You know, in the book, spoiler alert, Weena she just disappears. She just gets off. She just gets whisked away by the Morlocks and presumably devoured. And. Um, He he doesn't shed too many tears over it. But, yeah, he's a little bit miffed. (laughs) This tiny little fair elfin, (laughs) Gammon. I mean, almost childlike creature that he's... hmm, At least lets her lie with him. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's a bit of dodgy stuff in there. But it's not nothing compared to some of the writers that came later that I admire greatly as well. So, yeah, H.G. Wells, go and read him. And there's so much inspiration for gaming in all of these. I, you know, I, I haven't teased any of it out, but I, I don't need to. It's there lying right on the surface, these these wonderful situations and stories. And, you know, it's the old one. Yeah, yeah. A cliche is, is, is not a cliche when you use it in gaming. It's actually a good shorthand. So this stuff, I, I think, is rich fuel Um and you know, just pulling one example off the top of my head, uh, the curse of strad there's basically an island of Do- dr Moreau um, little vignette in there the um the mad priest <laughs> or cleric or whatever he is, um, uh, turning uh, men into beasts or beasts into men, or whatever it is he 's doing up in that up in that church uh, that's basically just a riff uh, or a direct lift, really. From the island of Doctor Moreau. Uh, yeah, well, you can tell I'm I'm into it. So, I've got a bunch more of these I could do. I don't know whether anyone wants to hear this um, gushing about different authors, but I've been consuming a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I, sh- I probably should do something on on um, Jonathan Mabry because he's been he's been impressing me a lot. Um, I probably should do something on Laird Barron. I think. He, that's the closest literature to, to, to what perhaps I'm trying to do with my Call of Cthulhu games. And, um, and, then, and then, of course, um, Aikman, Robert Aikman, who, yeah, had a huge gut punch, gave me a huge gut punch. Um, and I probably probably will do something about one or more of those authors. So uh, watch out for uh, Literature Corner coming soon from Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks a flare spurting out from Mars, bright green, drawing a green mist behind it, a beautiful but somehow disturbing sight. Ogilvy, the astronomer, assured me we were in no danger. He was convinced there could be no living thing on that remote, forbidding planet. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. Anything coming from Mars Are a million to one But still they come